Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Clone Star Podcast. I am your host, Shaw Hurley, and this week I'm joined by my regular co-host, Mike Overton. Mike, how are you? I am good, thank you, Shaw. And this week, our guest is a self-described jack-of-all-trades, master of none, a man who has traveled the globe in his youth and then during his career and to so many Star Trek conventions, a man whose faith has been decreed by the Egyptians and indeed the pyramids, he loves ketchup and playing as a linebacker, but is not that much into soccer. Don't ask him about his Broadway debut or indeed who the real William Shakespeare is. He has met Dr. Sam Beckett in Quantum Leap, Duncan McLeod in Highlander, and matched swords with the great Duncan Rhaegar on Zaro. To us, though, he will always be a changeling, a Herogen, a Vulcan, a Druckmanny, and of course, Chancellor and General of the Klingon Empire, Martok, we're delighted to be joined by the legendary J.G. Hertzler. J.G., welcome to the show. <laughs> Hold that up a small bit there for the camera. My God. <laughs> I always, I've always, since age nine, I've always required a polka being played if I'm introduced anywhere. And of course, as polka musicians are wont to do, you can't shut them up. So... Uh, I'm gonna have to turn off my damn phone, uh, Mike. You'll have to e you'll have to edit in polka music to the very I intro. Edit some polka music in, don't you worry. JJ, <laughs> right. uh, I'm gonna ask you a very easy question to start off with. Who embodies the Klingon spirit more, you or Robert O'Reilly? Well, I it's 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 you can't really have one with it's it's two sides of of one coin it's you know bob is the very dark and sardonic and somewhat very infrequently humorous side and martok is much more uh much more heroic as Jimmy Stewart said, you know James Stewart, the actor. Yeah, the Irish is is Stewart. No, it's that's Scots too, isn't it? Stewart. Uh, Jimmy said, uh, "No, I'm sorry, it wasn't Jimmy Stewart. It was it was Henry Fonda. I have no idea what Fonda is, but um, Henry Fonda. This woman said he was interviewing him. She was interviewing him, and he said, uh, she said, um, well, I, I know you.'" Uh, uh, I, you know, I think you're a, a wonderful actor, and I just think it, it, it's a, it's really amazing uh, that you can bring out those wonderful qualities in yourself to play the roles, all the heroes that you play, Mr. Fonda. And he said, um, now I can't remember if it's Jimmy Stewart or Henry Fonda, but whoever it was. I'll do Stuart. He said. He said. Well, I, I, I'm. I'm very. I, I'm very pleased that you. Um, that you uh, like. 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 You, that you. You. You like my work. Um, but uh, that. That's all a lie. I. I'm not. I'm not smart, and I'm a son of a bitch. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so. Uh, but. Um, which is embodies the neck. The, the. The Klingon spirit more. We really embody different aspects of it. And Bob was there first. You know, Bob was Galron, is Galron. Uh, I do bill myself. I have a hat somewhere that says, 
uh, it's a Klingon hat and it has OLKC on it. The only living Klingon chancellor, <laughs> which I wear every time I visit Bob, just to remind me. <laughs> um, but uh, I, you know, he he set, he really he really set the uh, set the mold. I mean, there was Krug, but I really Christopher Lloyd, even though he was a wonderful Krug, he's Christopher Lloyd. He's forever the guy on Taxi, you know, for me. Mm -hmm. um, uh wonderful actor he's got a new movie out right now um, he does that's right yep yeah. um but uh, i'd have to say we're two sides of the same coin and together we're a full personality but either one of us if you take us alone we have huge parts missing <laughs> in our personality and yeah. jg I've just finished reading your book, Confessions of a Klingon Linebacker. We'll come back to Star Trek, obviously, later on as well. I found the book incredibly engaging. If you haven't read it, please do seek it out. It's an incredibly honest. Did you? Are you sure? Yeah. Oh, oh you weren't talking to me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> By the way, as I'm really prepared for this interview, do I have a book handy? No. Uh, Let's see if I can find one. I did message you several times saying I was in the process of reading your book at the time leading <laughs> oh, up to this. I don't, I don't read those things. I, listen, um, <laughs> talk amongst yourselves for a moment. <laughs> um, and he's right here. I have some. Oh, yes. Here. This is very good. Very good. I have a whole box full of books. They're all mine. Unfortunately, <laughs> they can't be yours um there it is that's the book i'm i'm really quite proud of it. i'm i'm proud of all those these are all pictures of of um roles Different that i've you have. on stage and whatnot that's uh uh that i here's miss i played uh miss prism in importance of being earnest uh she was huge she was a huge miss prism um that's from it looked like Buster Brown. But anyway, this down here is uh, the handsomest I've ever been in any role. That guy at the bottom. Now, is he handsome or what? Huh? Gorgeous. Fantastic. Lovely photo. Um, and I love that show. It was 1940s Radio Hour. I love 1940s uh, big band music. And I've done that show three times. Three times. And um, I love I, the show. Yeah. I also like just as you mentioned the 1940s, I actually love your YouTube page as well, where you do the old timey uh, news ads for kind of newsreels as oh, well. You, I love the voice. There. Yeah, yeah. I looked uh, it up. It's brilliant. It's really, really kind of it's uh, really fun. Like, well, that was a uh, I'm, I'm really doing a send up of an announcer. Um, who is this? WW. It was what's his name now? Just skip, escape my. But it was like, it was like. Dateline Hollywood. Uh, I can't remember the. Um, who is it? You guys must know, even from across the the pond. Um, no, nope. I can nearly, well, I can nearly oh, pretty much guarantee we definitely probably wouldn't. Right? Actually, what we must do, actually, JG, I'm going to ask you for this: is that is there any way we can get you to record an intro for this episode in that voiceover of the newsreel? Of course, I do have to write it down so I can. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So coming back to the book, then you've written the book for your daughter. 
why was that the kind of the prompt for you to do it? What was the importance of writing the book for her as opposed you to, say, know, necessarily writing it for yourself? Yeah, I'm I'm 73 now. And um, by the way, do you know the song where 73 men sailed into San Francisco Bay? 73 men sailed into San Francisco Bay. You don't know that song? No. Wait a second. Hang on a second. You actually say in your book you can't sing. Now, that was a lovely singing voice I heard just there. So, well, anyway, I love the. Um, uh, I would have. I would have studied. Um, I did study. I paid vocal teachers, singing teachers, opera teachers, thousands. I'd be a rich man if I'd not if I had dropped this earlier. <laughs> but I I spent so much money wanting to sing. I have a I have a voice that people seem to like in terms of speaking. Mm -hmm. um, but I have a bad uh, singing, not bad, it's just ugly. Uh, it's not really right, but I, uh, uh, I would have given anything to be able to, I, I took so many, I, I took so much opera training, uh, but what it did do was improve my breath completely. I mean, I have enormous quantities of breath um so that what's also doing shakespeare on the shores of lake um uh god damn it john what's the famous lake of uh lake tahoe um we would do we did a i had a, i was a artistic director of a shakespeare touring company in the late in the late 80s in the mid to late 80s and we often toured to lake tahoe and it's in the mountains, it's 6,500 feet up. And uh, it's a beautiful lake, but it uh, there's a wind and there's pine trees everywhere. So there's always a, and then there's the lake going as the things come in. We had no microphones. So we had to belt out the words. You could get three words out and then you had to suck for oxygen, suck air you know, to get the next three words out. So our Shakespeare had very strange breakage in it. Um, anyway, why am I talking about that? Oh, singing. I wish I could. I would love to have been. a. Uh, I love music is so freaking important. Music tells us how what we're thinking when we're watching a movie. Yep. Music clues us into the underneath spirit of whatever's going on. And um, it is critical and so i've always loved you know did a, i've done a lot of um uh yeah that character not i didn't do a lot of this character but i was doing dinner theater when i started out so everybody doing dinner that's a guy named stewpot in south pacific who sort of joins in the chorus of bloody mary is the girl i love bum, 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 bum. you know and uh that was the height of my musical career. I, I I'm going to bring you back to my original question of the the Damn book you, man. Being, what is it? the back the back the, your book being written for your daughter JG. Oh, that's right. Why? <laughs> um, poor Mike, you're going to have to do some amount of editing for this episode when we're when we're, when we're finished. <laughs> yeah, look at that. Look at that. Not my coffee spring, but the name Clary's. 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 
is a restaurant. What's it say? 1903? What's that say? Yeah, 1903, yeah. That's in Savannah, Georgia, where I was born. Mm. And Clary's, it's got to be Irish, isn't it? It's got to be an Irish name. Well, they're like there, there, there was a there was a Cleary's department store up in Dublin, which was pretty famous for decades. So it could be the same well, name. That could be then. Um, but I was born in 1950. My daughter was born in 1999. That's uh, what 49 years later, half a century later. Um, by that time, the year she was born. My grandmother passed away. The next year, after about a year, my mother passed away. So she, I have one picture of my mother feeding a, a spoonful of green goo to you know a nine, ten-month-old uh, daughter, Hannah, um, and that's the only picture I have of them together. Um. So, Hannah has did not get a chance to to know her grandparents at all. So I said, there must be a way to recount the stories about my life and the people involved in it before she before Hannah arrived here on Earth, and that's just it's just like a backstory. Here's your backstory, Hannah of your family on my side anyway um like one of the so things like one of the things you say early in the book and it's something that really resonated with me is you talked about the fact that you were ambitious but you didn't necessarily have a kind of a plan as to where you were going with that ambition now sometimes people will often say you know well if you are ambitious you have to go in this line or that line or the other line but with you, it seems to be kind of different. It was, I want to succeed, but I'm willing to try different things. And like throughout your entire life, you've had so many different jobs. I can most, you know, almost one hilarious job followed by another hilarious job. How important is it for you to kind of say that, you know, it's you don't have to have a plan and you can still be ambitious without a plan? Well, you know, there's negative connotations for me to say ambitious. I don't, I don't really think of myself as ambitious. I wanted to do the best I could do, given what I have been given. Um, you know, I, I believe politicians and business people are ambitious. Ambitious, like like a uh, like maybe an archaeologist is ambitious. I mean, how do you be ambitious as an archaeologist? You you want to find. Uh, an extraordinary hidden buried city or um, something that the world hasn't known yet. Um, but I, it's hard. It's hard for me to answer that question. I, I, I never thought of myself. I, I don't. Maybe I did. Uh, if You could correct me if you can find that quote, but I I had ambition, but I wasn't driven at all, ever. I've always drifted uh, into what the current, where the current took me. <clears throat> I, I think I'd be a lot farther along in life in terms of uh, um, paying for groceries tomorrow. Um, 
if I had been ambitious to the point of being driven. But I I am the worst marketer person, marketing the, uh, the, the worst. Uh, there are probably five or six, no, probably 50 or 60 things in my immediate uh, circle here that prescribe activities that if I pursued e any of them with a drive, I would I could have been successful <clears throat> in them uh, financially, a little more successful, a, a lot more successful than I am. Um, we never had anything. My, you know, my dad was in the Air Force. My mother was a, a high school teacher. And we lived all over the world. I literally saw so many parts of the world between touring to conventions from Star Trek to growing up as an Air Force family that went all over the place and lived. Uh, and yet you never made it to Ireland on any of these trips. And that was what I was waiting for in the book. I was saying, what part of Ireland is he going to go to? The only, you know, the part I keep talking about is Dublin, of course. Um, I there's a there's a, a couple of Star Trek groups I think in Ireland. One of them seems to be based. They used to do a convention yeah. uh, at some point in Dublin. Uh, yeah. And uh, but I I never got around to it because I again my own failure to to push myself and to market myself. Well, if it happens, if if Dublin wants me to be there, they'll come and get me. It's as simple as that, isn't it? Well, um, I I know the organizer of the Dublin Comic Con, so I'll drop him a message after this and say I know somebody who wants to come over and pay and and spend some time in Ireland. Good luck with that. <laughs> I, I, good luck. I, I I honestly wish you immense luck because I'm, there's nothing I would love more. And you know what would be even better is because Bob's from his family's from Ireland, and Bob and I. I, I say this because we help each other on stage uh, when we do shows. Um, it's mainly it's mainly lambasting each other for about an hour and a half. <laughs> but somehow it seems to be funny to a lot of people, maybe just us. Um, but uh, we're great on stage together. And Bob being an Irishman, uh, Riley, not all Riley, actually, his, his uh, given name is Riley, but there was already a Robert uh, Robert Riley, so he had to add the O. So he put in the O. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that. Now. Um. So he had to, but um. You know, we just we just get a kick out of brutalizing each other, and uh, <laughs> like me and you, show. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah. John, why is it a case that you have such strong suspicions about the true identity of the author of the William Shakespeare plays? Because before J.K. Rowling, uh, I thought it was would be impossible for anybody without really uh, uh, devoting their life to literature and writing to write 16 of the greatest or 22 whatever the number is of the greatest plays ever written in verse as yeah. well as prose as well as ep two or three epic poems and uh how many sonnets are there 136 or 
There's 192, is this, or something? Something like that, yeah. <clears throat> Without having an education, he had nothing past grammar school. <clears throat> Shakespeare. His father was... 54. Uh, 54? 154, 154. Um, now, I said, that's impossible. So... And then I then I started reading. In fact, I did it as part of a thesis in master as a master's um, a master's degree in uh, college. Uh, a study of Christopher Marlowe and the mighty line. He is given credit by nearly everybody as the inventor of the mighty line, which is iambic pentameter. They, they call it the mighty the mighty line of Marlowe. Da 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 da. You know. Um, and so I began studying at his life and I'm not the first and many, many, many people think that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare, that he was an actor in the Shakespeare's, the, in the, uh, Chamberlain's men at, um, uh, across the river there at, uh, what was it? What was it across the river? Um, the old globe. Um, oh, yeah, the globe theater. And yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, this has been a dispute, and it's still a dispute. Some attributed to Francis Bacon. Some, uh, but he is boring. If you read Bacon, he's boring as hell. You know, <laughs> Francis Bacon? No, I don't think so. Uh, I was going to say which Bacon, Francis Bacon or Kevin Bacon? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be something quite remarkable. Kevin Bacon. Oh, by the way, Kevin, do you know Kevin Bacon wrote Hamlet? Did you know that? <laughs> that would be hilarious. Everyone knows that. Um, but I, I found out because Marlowe was a um, was worked in the Queen's uh, Secret Service and was yeah. part of the Privy Council and uh, was twenty three was young twenty three years old and went to uh, I don't know if, I don't think it was Oxford if if Oxford was even around then. He, I think it was. Um, he went to college uh, with a study of literature, and he wrote, before he was 23, he wrote, uh, had written three major plays, Faustus, uh, uh, Dr. Faustus, um, caught me, where the three big plays, I, I can't remember, uh, uh, not Christabel, um, Anyway, so I said, this is a man with the education, with the knowledge of the world, because he traveled all over the world as a spy for Queen Elizabeth I. He was in on all these courts that he refers to and all these uh, plays that, he's, that, that are attributed to Shakespeare. You know, he's in Venice. He's in, uh, he's in France. He knows all about France all the time. Um, and Shakespeare never got anywhere. Shakespeare was born in, you know, to a, a, a Tanner's family in Stratford, I guess. Yep. Uh, grew up there and got. Now, Marlowe was murdered in a bar in Deptford, England, in eighteen ninety in fifteen ninety three. Oddly enough, the same year Shakespeare's first play was produced at the theater in London. 
So I said, hmm. So Marlowe disappeared the first time Shakespeare had a play produced in London. Uh-huh. <laughs> JJ, so, we need like we, we need to do like a Discovery TV channel series with you investigating these these theories specifically on the real origins of Shakespeare. It's a it's a possibility. I'd love to do it, but that makes me think. In Ireland, did, I know that. Uh, do you have you guys? Do you watch uh, Outlander? I've uh, seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you, you've seen it, but you're not devoted watchers. No. No. Outlander, well, they did a show called Men in Kilts, uh, the two leads. Uh, I can't think of their names, but they, they they toured around Scotland doing very Scottish things. And then I said they should go to Ireland. There's so many strangely Irish things that they could do uh, over there and still be in kilts. Um, but uh, I don't know. What was I saying? What were you asking me? Uh, we were trying to work out the real origin of Shakespeare, but again, oh. that's, we're leaving that for your Discovery TV special that you're going to do at right. some point. What I, what I want to talk to you about now is the Egyptians and pyramids and how that has played into the good luck that exists in your life. Well, the only... <laughs> I still want to get to the pyramids and... There's so much disaster going on in the Middle East. I'm sure I never will. Because, you know, there are still tours of Americans going to the pyramids, but they seem to be <clears throat> threatened by uh, so many re revolutionary groups yeah. all the time that it seems like I'll, it'll never happen. Um, but, you know... Like Napoleon, Napoleon was just, he had a driving need to see what the pyramids were all about. I, nobody still knows what the pyramids are all about. It wasn't just a tomb. You know, they're too, they are, they are too astronomically oriented uh, to be simply a bunch of tombs, a bunch of grave sites. Uh, so there's so much going on there. I, <clears throat> my... A, my chance of getting there is, I'd say, nil. But um, I did go to a lecture on pyramidology uh, in uh, in New York when I first got to New York. I got I was staying at the I stay, I was staying at a fraternity house in uh, at Columbia, um, the, the university in north in the very north end of uh, Manhattan because I was a member of that fraternity in my own school, which is in Pennsylvania. And uh, because of that, I, I called up the, the fraternity. I said, is it possible that I could rent a room there at the university during the summer when there's nobody in class? And they said, of course, brother. You know, we did the magic signs back and forth to each other. A secret handshake and things like this. <laughs> we have a secret handshake, yes, we do. <laughs> we also have another thing going on with gestures to the head um but um so i did i was i was up at the fraternity house in columbia and got a phone call there for the fraternity and it was a guy in uh oh what's the name of the hospital now Be uh, bellevue in it's a uh, there's a it's a regular i guess it's a regular hospital in the south end of manhattan yeah 
and it's uh, they do have a fifth floor, which is the psychiatric ward. And it was a call from the psychi- psych- psychiatric ward in Bellevue, which I knew nothing about being not only stupid about a lot of things, but completely unfamiliar with New York because um, I had just moved there. Congratulating myself on living in New York City for $60 a month. Uh, and that was something to behold. But um, a guy called and said, would it be possible for one of the brothers, one of the brothers, and a strange little voice, he said, one of the brothers to come down and visit me because I'm a, a member of Saigam um, and I would love to be visited. So I said, sure. <laughs> not knowing anything about life at all. So I said, I'll come down. So I went. And I can't remember what his name is now. Jeez. Anyway, uh, I went up to the fifth floor, realized it was a psychiatric ward, but- Run away, you know. <laughs> uh, um, uh, yeah, it was, it was, that's right, it was Liam Neeson. I forgot about that. No, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> Uh, he, uh, so I, I was looking at all these people that were sort of leaning on the wall or, you know, talking, muttering to themselves. And it, it was a true ward filled with people with great disabilities. And, uh, uh this gentleman was wheeled out and, um, he spoke to me about, um, Oh, I, I'm getting to what you asked me about. This I know, I, I, I know. <laughs> uh, the, uh, he, he asked me, oh, oh, he was a chain smoker. He had a, he had a slip, he had two slippers. One was on his foot, the other one was on his leg. And it was filled with, uh, like if it was a, a shoe, there was a rows of cigarettes down from the heel to the toe and on the inside, and he would keep that slipper shoe on his leg, and as soon as he would finish smoking the one cigarette, he'd have another, you know, the the definition of chain smoking. Uh, and like the other with the one that he's, he's done. And uh, I, because of his conversation, I knew almost immediately, maybe an hour or two later, that he was insane. Um, <laughs> But he said, um, he said, uh, yes, could you look up a book that I wrote with Bennett Cyril? Uh, it's called All That Glitters. Um, and uh, it's, uh, I never, I, I think I have royalties coming from that book. I said, I'll be happy to I'll, I'll investigate. Bennett Cyril is a popular humorist in writing. Uh, and anyway, so I knew who that was, but I never heard of this guy. Um, just a minute. Um, um so so i got out of there eventually um he said, described uh he said do you know do you know uh raymond thomas um he's on the first floor i said no oh, no no I, I don't know he said well yes he has a shock of shocking right red hair and a, a rather tubercular chest uh, that's, I remember that's, I've never heard anybody de- described that way with a tubercular chest. <clears throat> I said, no, I, I didn't see him. He said, well, 
stop and see if you can see him on the way out. And perhaps I can get another pack of cigarettes. He said, I will. Uh, but on the walking on the way home, okay, um, uh, after this, I have to take, can I take a break? Yes, because, of course. Yeah, of course you can. Because my doggy really has to go out. I can and hear, I, I knew it was a dog or a cat or something that I could nobody hear. Nobody else. Yeah, there's nobody else to take him, take her out. That's fine. Uh, anyway, I, on the way home, I stopped at a, there was a, crisp, you know, there used to be crystal stores around. Yeah. Uh, and this one had special lecture today on pyramidology. Uh, and I said, hmm. I walked by and then I walked back. I said, hmm, pyramidology. So I went in and I listened to the lecture. It was about two hours. And I immediately erected a pyramid-like structure over my bed. It said to do this with broomsticks or whatever. Uh, taped uh, a pyramid point up there and built it over the bed uh, pyramid. So you're sleeping within a pyramid for the effect of pyramid magic to happen. And uh, so the next day, the next day, I believe, or at least that week, I was in line for an audition uh, at um, for Robert Bridegroom, to a Broadway show. Uh, Barry Bostwick did the lead. Um, anyway, I was auditioning. I auditioned for it. I did an audition with a song. And I, because I had so much music in my background, but I, it was, it was all like half-assed. And so I, I sang a song. Um, uh, I, I um, not that's life, but it was a, it was a. Uh, damn it! Anyway, it was like that's life, and I got through the first um, verse. And they said, and I stopped. <laughs> they said, oh, why did you stop? Uh, why did, go ahead, keep going. I said, those, those are all the words I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> you know, because, you know, the, the hardest working and most talented people in show business are dancers and singers on Broadway. They're the best. And so... <laughs> Well, when somebody says, "Oh, I, I didn't learn the rest of the song," <laughs> it's only an audition. <laughs> uh, so um, anyway, but in line for that audition, I get a tap on my shoulder from behind, and there's a girl there and a lady, and she says, "Um, out of the blue, you're not by any chance looking for an apartment, are you?" I said. Yes, I am. So I moved in. She said, well, I'm leaving. I'm moving into Manhattan Plaza. My apartment's available. It will be available. It's very inexpensive. It's $100 a month. Uh, and I need somebody to take over the sublet. Done. So within uh, 24 hours of sleeping under a pyramid, I got my first Broadway audition. For a <laughs> and an apartment. And an apartment. There, yes, and and a reference to an agent. Forgot about that. Every actor on the street in New York is looking for three things, a job, an agent, and an apartment. All the time. <laughs> Just ask anybody 
that's an actor that you can identify and ask them, do you need an apartment? Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway. I'm going to take one question there. We're going to jump forward a few years. What happens when you set foot in San Francisco then as well, and you were looking for somewhere to stay? Tell us now about getting an apartment in San Francisco, San Francisco. when you arrived. <laughs> and then we're going to discuss ketchup. Love ketchup. I know you love ketchup. <laughs> it's weird that I hate ketchup. Oh, Jesus, oh, Mike, God. good Lord. Oh, Mike, yes. Oh, what's wrong with you, man? Well, I'm a barbecue or mayonnaise man, so. Mm. Barbecue and mayonnaise, man? Yeah, but either barbecue sauce or mayonnaise, depending on the occasion. Do you have Miracle Whip in, in England? Miracle it's, no. it's not mayonnaise, but it's a substitute for mayonnaise. And it's I grew up on it. I grew up on a cheese, a Velveeta cheese sandwich. Yeah. With with Miracle Whip and lettuce. Miracle Whip. I mean, I'm Googling Miracle Whip. Oh, yeah. Oh, you, you see it? Yeah, yeah, I got it, yeah. The salad, it, they call it a salad dressing, but it's not really. It's mayonnaise, but it doesn't taste like anyway. Better. Um, oh, so but, you, can, you can find it in Germany, Germany, as well as Canada and the United States. So there you go. Oh, is that right? Not in England. No, is but it? I can buy it on Amazon. There's well, I, in, <laughs> in in my in in my local supermarket. There's just this random stall in one of the aisles that's like the American aisle. We so all the American stuff is there, right there, and you'd be looking at like the sugar content and all of them going, "Oh my god!" Oh, yeah, but it's not what I would call the cool things from America. It's the very generic things. It's Twinkies, it's Lucky Charms, Lucky Charms. It's yeah. you know massive. Um, what are they? Marshmallows and hot dogs oh, and yes. yeah, not what I would call like, the normal stuff. It's the very oh, touristy oh. kind of yeah. yeah. That you've I'm heard gone. of this kind of thing, like, yeah. So so I can buy a jar of Miracle Whip on Amazon for £19. <laughs> Was that, like $22? <laughs> $24, yeah. Oh, $24. Oh, my Lord. JG, well, you have, you, you, you'll have to buy uh, you have to buy one for me and Mike and then post it over to us. No, I'll, I'll pick it up when I'm in Vegas. <laughs> oh, that's better because it, it would cost about $30 to put it in a box. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming to Vegas in um, in August, so I'll, I'll pick up a jar when I'm in Vegas. I might be there. I don't I, I might I, I might be there. I don't know yet. Um, if you are, let me know, because I would love to take you out for a drink. No, Mike, he's coming to Dublin and I'm going to take him around Ireland and I'm going to take him out of that awful city that let's is Dublin. Let's not pick it about uh, where uh, I'm speaking. There's plenty <laughs> of food for everyone. I'll bring a couple of barrels of blood wine. It'll be fine. That's right. Blood wine. Have you ever tasted any blood wine? <laughs> what? Hang on. No, no, no. Hang on. Don't ask that because we're going to put, we're actually going to ask that later in the podcast because I want yeah. to know what the hell is in the blood in your drink. Now, JG, you have to tell us apartment, San Francisco. How did you get it? Right. Well, I got uh, based on based on my performance on it wasn't on Broadway, but Broadway adjacent. The theater was on Broadway. It was uh, the Circle in the Square, which is really highly respected uh, repertory theater on uh, on Broadway in New York City. 
And I was in a show there called The Bacchae by, um, I think it was Aristophanes. Was it Aristophanes? Probably not. He wrote those comedies all the time. Who wrote The Bacchae? Seneca? No. I've forgotten. That should be easy to look up. Um, Some Greek guy 3,000 years ago. Um, Anyway. I did the Bacchae. It was horrible. I was horrible. Everybody in it was horrible because the director was horrible. Yeah. Uh, Michael Kakianis. I shall give you his name because he is he he he's gone now, I'm sure. But he his claim to fame was that he had directed the film Zorba the Greek. Oh yeah, and I've heard of those, yeah. Was, yeah. And he was um he brought uh, Irene Papa. You don't know I, Irene Pappas. We knew her as uh, an actor here in, in uh, the U.S. <clears throat> and it's so many years. Ago. The Guns of Navarone. You remember the Guns of Navarone? That movie. Yep, yep. That was Irene Pappas. Was the female resistance fighter that was helping the Americans uh, and the British, I guess. Uh, yeah. Um, get into that cave in <clears throat> the guns of Navarone. I loved that movie as a kid, you know, it was incredible. But, um, and there I was, she was cast as my mother in uh, the Bacchae. And she was a, she's a brilliant, she's still with us. She is a brilliant actor. I mean, brilliant and uh, powerful, powerful performances. Um, but even she got bad reviews because of her friend, Michael Kakianis, who basically is incapable of, of talking to actors. Um, he, I remember he would stand there with one hand, a jar of feta cheese in this hand and a cigarette in this hand, and he'd be saying, well, you know, don't try to understand what you're saying. Just say it and feel for an understanding as you as you speak and that should be that should get you know, you know uh, it was off and, and and i was lost i i was lost i said uh, well this is going to kill me uh this this is my broadway debut and um <laughs> I will say that even though I spit my fake tooth out during the audition a few months earlier, he still cast me as Pentheus, uh, which is a lead, a major role in this play. Anyway, um, what a what a life in the business. Um, <laughs> anyway, he, uh, actually, that's something that comes across in the book quite a lot. Is that a lot of books you'd often read it'd be somebody say you know i did this in college which gave me that role and i met this person basically it's a continuous upward trajectory but i loved in your book it'd be i was doing this i gave that a go that fucking failed and then i had to pick myself back up i picked up something else this was going well that fucking fell apart there again <laughs> I had to pick yeah. myself. so every time i turned the page i was there going i have no idea which way the story is going to go because it could be either brilliant or an absolute fucking disaster <laughs> that was the wonder of the book oh i think that's good um so anyway i um because of that show, um, 
the the artistic director of the um because of that show and because of uh, I did a production of the Scottish play in Minnesota, a great theater by uh, that was called the Guthrie, named after the great Scots director, I think, um, Tyrone Guthrie. Uh, I was asked to come out to do, I got a phone call after I had gotten like awful reviews uh, for in New York for this show. About a week later, I got a call from San Francisco, a great theater there called uh, American Conservatory Theater, ACT. It's one of the great, one of the leading theaters in this country. It's a repertory theater where they have a conservatory as well as a union company of about 50 people, which is huge for this country. Um, it's not that anymore. It all changed after, uh, after I left. <laughs> But uh, the guy who ran it uh, passed away. Anyway, um, Bill Ball called me uh, on my house phone and said, uh, "Hello, John. This is this is William Ball. I am. I'm I'm calling because I'm interested in bringing you out here to San Francisco ACT to do a few uh, leading roles in uh, next season." And I said, "Yeah, Bill Ball. Yeah, right." I don't think so. Who is this? And uh, and he said, no, 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 it really is William Ball. And uh, so I said, uh, he said, I'd like you to do uh, the part of uh, Crichton in the admirable Crichton. I'd like you to do Richard in Richard the Second. I'd like you to do uh, the lead in Happy Landings. And I'd like you to do the, you know, something else, something else. Oh, it's, it's Flea in Your Ear by... Uh, Sardou, I think. It wasn't Moliere, it was Sardou, uh, I think. Um, anyway, um, he said, would you like, would you come, this starts in a month, um, would you like to join us? And, uh, and I said, uh, let me think about it, yes. Let me get out of New York. They hate me here. Um, so, so I uh, I went. That's when I went to San Francisco, and I didn't know anybody. I didn't know the town. I didn't know the theater. I didn't know anything about anything. And that's that describes. That could be the subtitle for my book. I don't know anything about. Anything. <laughs> that's um, your next book, is it? Yeah, it might be. Um, uh, and so I was, I had to look for an apartment and, uh, it was different than New York because San Francisco actually had apartments, uh, available for people and there would be a sign, uh, you know, apartment for rent or one bedroom for rent or something like that. So I walk around town looking for appropriate places. I looked at a few and, um, um, I was I, I I passed a I wish I had the picture handy. I passed a set of steps on off of Pine Street, uh, going up the hill, and from Pine Street to California Street, and California Street was the um, it crossed over Knob Hill and down to the Embarcadero. Right. Um, and 
I looked at those steps. They, they looked to me like I had been. No, I hadn't been yet. Yeah, I will later. In just about two years, I'll go to um, go to Paris, and I'll see the steps up up Montmartre to the uh, Church of the Sacré Cœur. Uh, you know, up on top of in uh, yeah, in yeah. Um Anyway, uh, but I saw those steps, and they just were like calling to me. I said, I want to live up there. And I walked up the steps to the top and I sat down on the top step and uh, put my bag down. Actors always have a bag, put my bag down. <clears throat> and uh, I just waited all day. Uh, I was tired of walking and it was for about four or five, six hours. I sort of sat there and watched San Francisco go by. And I started to get up to leave. I said, well, that's it. It was getting dark. And as I did, a lady drove up um, and parked nearby in the alleyway there and said at the top of the stairs. And uh, I was started to walk down the stairs to go back to uh, the hotel where I was staying. And I and she said, excuse me, young man. I was a young man then. Um, Excuse me, young man. Would could you possibly give me uh, help with the uh, with this television set? My my husband has a has hurt his back and he can't he can't help me carry it, and I have to get up to the fourth floor. And I said, of course, because <clears throat> you know I was about as strong as I ever was at that point, and uh, I figured I could help anybody do anything, and um, so I helped her. I moved the TV up to the uh, up to her apartment, their apartment, and I was starting back down. And she said, "She said, oh, by the way, um, if you ever need an apartment in the area here, let me know, because I manage that building, that building, and this building. <laughs> it was on Knob Hill." in san francisco <laughs> and and i said uh this building will do <laughs> so i had my first apartment in san francisco was on the sixth floor overlooking the san francisco bay the uh Coit tower was over there the uh that big pyramid like building i can't remember yeah. what the name of it was but it was right there downtown it was stunning and it was cheap <laughs> because I helped with the TV. Moral of the story, if anybody ever asks you if you are a strong enough person to help move, I don't care what it is. If it's the heaviest <laughs> object known to man, help move it. Because <laughs> you're getting a apartment out of it. <laughs> she looked like a fairy godmother at that point, like Anne <laughs> On uh, on the Andy Griffith show, um, but that was my first apartment in San Francisco. And, so, yeah. in in your time in LA as well, John, you bumped into a, a notable Star Trek alumni. Well, he is now, but at the time he wasn't. You bumped into Patrick Stewart. Well, well yes, bumped Patrick, into him as in you were showing him around, right? Uh, Patrick, 
wanted to teach a uh, a workshop. He wanted to start a Shakespeare company in L.A. Yeah. So he could bring what he learned with the Royal Shakespeare Company and whatnot to the actors in L.A. And there's a lot of wonderful actors in L.A. Um, and it was a one. It was a great idea. He wanted to. Uh, so he started out by having a workshop. And he and I. Uh, um, he didn't know where to do it, where to have a workshop. So a, uh, a cousin of mine, he happened to be friends with from the show. Uh, I think she was an actress on the show on um, Next Generation. And um, I had just, what did I do? That was like about 93. And the only thing I had done at that point was do the uh, Romulan captain of the uh, Saratoga, which gets blown up. I got blown up within three minutes of my appearance. Um, and that's another story. But um, <laughs> but uh, so I was on I was on I was on the lot. And so she asked me to help Patrick find a suitable space in Hollywood to do his workshop because we're cousins. This woman that was, he was a uh, friends with and, and I didn't, uh, anyway. Um, so I did, I rode around town with him looking at various spaces. And if you've ever looked for spaces that actors can afford to rent in West in downtown Hollywood, uh, we saw some pretty seedy, awful places. <laughs> they just smell it a mile away. Um, but um, finally, he said, well, wait a minute. Well, he said, wait a minute, John. I, uh, why not do it at Paramount Studios? I said, well, that's a good idea, Patrick. <laughs> yes, I thought it was. <laughs> so he got permission to do his workshop at... Um, well, he was Patrick Stewart. I mean, uh, uh, and he had about 15 people in this workshop. And luckily, I was one of them. I think because only because I helped him look around it, I, I escorted him around Hollywood. So hang on, John, let me get this right. So that means the life lessons we have is one, build a pyramid in your bed so you can live under it. Two, if somebody well, asks you to move something, no matter how heavy it is, you fucking help them move it. And three, right. if somebody says, bring me around the place and so I can try and find <laughs> locations to hold a Shakespearean acting troupe, <laughs> do it. Do it, yes. And yes. And I've planned my life on those three principles. Yes. Principles. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, so yeah, and that, that was, in fact, during that, uh, there's some wonderful act, actors in that show. And I, at one point, Patrick said, um, he was telling us something that he, uh, something about the Scottish play, which remains, you're not supposed to say the, the title of Macbeth because. Yeah. Oh, you said it, John. Oh no. Oh, Why no. did you say it? Curse. Well, the, the, there's an antidote. Angels and ministers of grace defend us. defend us, us yes. <laughs> yes. So I always say that afterwards because, in, anyway. Um, so uh, Patrick said it, uh, the Scottish play, you know, he said, and yeah, the end of Macbeth, this, Macbeth, and I quoted a line. I said, Patrick, 
Patrick, you can't do it. You, you realize what you just did? He said, what? I said, you quoted the Scottish play. And he goes, oh, bollocks that. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, I'll go outside. I will turn around three times, spit over my left shoulder, <laughs> knock my helmet. Yeah, and uh, it, as a proxy for you. Uh, so I did, and he did, and all went well. Um, but as, a, as with everything else in my life, I just left that relationship drift apart. I never, you know, I, I never, uh, I, I think I could have, uh, I could have stuck with him for a while, uh, had I thought about it, but, uh, I don't think about anything, uh, a thoughtless life. That might be another title. A, for uh, the sequel of the, the, the book we have upcoming. Yes. <laughs> um, or Thoughtless Life. JD, as well, like, obviously, we talk a lot about the acting, but you're also a prolific director as well, and you've done so much directing. And I know that you say that you find you have more creativity and creative freedom as a director than you do as an actor. What, say, freedom do you enjoy in being a director? Uh well, uh, one of the things, I'm very uh, proud of several things that I've directed. I'm proud of almost nothing that I've ever acted in. Martok is probably the, the difference because I got to work on it for four years. And they say there's an, in an actor's life, there's maybe one to four things, roles that he or she will ever do that joins so completely with their personality that you are no longer even acting. You just are, you are that, that character. And um, so I think Martok was that for me, uh, a few other things I've done, but Martok was, uh, I loved Martok. Um, and I, uh, I was able to do something uh, at a line in a big speech, you know the I, the episode of DS Nine that was, that John Kolikos, the Canadian actor who did Core, yep. the very first Klingon ever on Star Trek, that was John Kolikos, um, and I was in the last show he ever appeared on as a Klingon in on Star Trek. Come to think about it, I never thought about that, <clears throat> but. Uh, once more into the breach again a quote from shakespeare um that was the name of the episode and uh there was a speech that i had explaining why i would never forgive core for uh what he did to me and to my family and especially to my father yeah. by denying me the ability to get to become a uh, a candidate in the officer's candidate school for Klingons and whatever, you know. Um, he did not, because I was not of royal blood. I, Martok grew up in, on. it was often explained, it was once explained to me by the director, I think by Ira Bear, he said, you might think of Martok as been born into the garbage heaps around Mexico City. That's the depths from which he arises um 
So I've always thought of it that way. And I said, uh, I said to Ron, in explaining why I won't forgive Core, I said, I called, uh, you could call the, you know, there was a phone on the wall in the studios where we're working. And I said, um, so I, you're supposed to call and I could call the writers and I called Ron Moore. And I said, Ron, I'd really like to add a line at the end of that beautiful speech, a couple of lines, if I may. Uh, and he said, well, what are you thinking about adding? And I explained to them, I said, well, the speech is about, I will never forgive him because uh, he denied me the one thing that my father had wished uh, for me, for his son. And Cor denied him that only wish. And uh, for me, John, I said, you know, my dad died fairly young. He didn't see me do anything in theater, film, nothing. I hadn't even begun to even think about being an actor. And uh, I said, um, the line is this. Uh, not exactly, I think, but something like this. I said, and I cannot... I cannot forgive Cor because he denied my father the only wish that he ever had for his son to become an officer in the Klingon Defense Force. Uh, and for me, it was like my father, my John's father, never had a chance to see me do anything. He died before any of that possibility happened. So all the thoughts or dreams he might have had for his son, he never got to see. And I said, um, and and Ron Moore said, it's wonderful, absolutely, keep it, write it, do it. And um, Ron Moore is a genius, you know. Um, in fact, he created Outlander. He did, yeah, the, that's right. The book, and... Um, and is a major writer on it. And I saw the other night, I saw Rene Echeverria on uh, Carnival Row. You know, he created Carnival Row. Yeah. Rene Echeverria, Ron Moore, Robert Hewitt Wolf, uh, the writers on that sh on Star on DS9 were stupendous, were incredibly talented people. Um, anyway. And actually, as you were saying there, JJ, about like you were kind of saying that. You know, you're not necessarily proud of a lot of stuff that you've acted in and things like that. I'm always kind of brought back to the Adam Driver scenario, which is Adam Driver cannot watch himself in any of his performances. He can't watch oh. anything back. Do you find it hard to watch yourself back in anything, maybe even including being General Martok? Martok's not hard because it's, I've got a huge mask on. You know, mm. it's a mask. And I, I don't believe my face with anything. I mean, here I am, I got a huge beard, sunglasses and a hat. You can only see a little bit of cheekbone and nose and some forehead. Uh, that's all I want to share with you. That's all I, that's all I feel good about. Um, uh, yeah, I don't like people looking at me. It's That's one of the reasons I don't like, um, but, but I do love team sports. Um, so I don't, I don't, Want to, I don't want to be out there 
leading the pack. I want to be the pack. I want to be, um, to me, theater and sports, theater and football are the same in this way. It's a bunch of people that come together to struggle like the devil to, to do something extraordinary, not nothing of which could they do alone. It takes the whole group. It takes the team. It takes the, the family. And uh, I've often talked about all the theater experiences I've had are families that I've had been I've been uh, blessed to work with over the last 25 years. And uh, I've been I, I just consider myself very lucky, very lucky. And JJ, you mentioned a few minutes ago about being obviously your start was as the Vulcan captain of the Saratoga and DS9. But can you tell us about your audition for Martok and most importantly, how many chairs were injured in that process? <laughs> oh, the chair count was very high. <laughs> um, well, I, yeah, I. When I, I was already in a bad foul mood. That was a foul mood. I mean, I'm I'm kind of moody, <clears throat> and I was in a foul mood. And I and I got offered the audition by the casting director Ron Sermon. He was walking by. I was sitting on a underneath some stairs in a after blowing another audition. It was just awful. Actually, sorry, I have to. I've interrupted you for a second. When I read that 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 section of your book where you said you had gone to an audition and you just basically had sat under some stairs and i thought it was the most unique mental image i ever had in my entire life of you just sitting there randomly and ron walks past and he's there going hey come on upstairs to us all together that's the way it was that's absolutely true he goes uh he knew me because i'd already done four years earlier the Vulcan captain. So he yeah. knew who he was. And I auditioned after that. It was like the it was like the wolf and the or the coyote and the sheepdog. You know, I we'd go in every day, punch our ticket in. Okay, what are you gonna do? Oh, this okay, okay thank you. And then I'll I'd do that like five times a week for three, four years. And I said, Oh hi John. They'd say, Hi John, oh hi. Uh what are you gonna do? Uh, same old thing. Okay, fine. Punch ticket. Go leave. Go home. Uh, but so I had. I think Terry Farrell. I auditioned for this comedy that Terry Farrell would do later. Uh, she was a bartender in a yeah comedy. Becker with Ted Danson. Is it? Yeah, Becker. Yes, it was. And. Um, it was Becker. I've forgotten that name. Yeah. Um, and I had just was awful at a, you know, acting wise, comedy is not, does not come easy to me. Which is, um, which is really interesting, John, because you're absolutely hilarious in normal life. So it's a surprising it doesn't it. translate to the screen. No, well, I wish, would that it did. Uh, <laughs> since I have no idea what I'm doing, then how can I recreate it for the screen? That's your um, next book. Or the stage, yes. <laughs> uh, um, well, uh, anyway, uh, so I was stewing. The, uh, literally, there was a step unit that went up to the second floor of these old studio buildings. And underneath was just like a bunch of garbage piling up boxes and crap. 
and actors. And uh, so there I was sitting on a box, you know, pissed off, was too angry to drive. Uh, and uh, Ron Summer walks by and says, uh, oh, hello, John. And I, and I go, yeah. Uh, he said, hey, you might be just right for this role. You want to take a look at it? I said, what is it? He said, uh, it's a Klingon. I said, oh, great. <laughs> so it's just grunting and swearing and, uh, you know, whatever, angry. And he said, uh, well, why don't you take a look at it and come on up when you get a chance to read the uh, read the part. So I did. I went in there. But, oh, before I did, uh, I said, you know, I'm not going to be what they expect. I'm not going to be your angry, vitriolic, insufferable, overbearing, uh, volatile Klingon. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be sneaky. I'm going to be Hamlet. Uh, Hamlet, considering to be or not to be, that is the question, that it is nobler in the mind to suffer those things and hours of outrageous fortune. And so I did it that way. And it said, uh, oh, thank you. Uh, John, do you know what a Klingon is? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, uh, let me guess. You want an angry, insufferable, intolerable, vitriolic, <laughs> spitting, hating being. And they said, uh, yes. <laughs> so that's what I did. But before I started, I picked up a chair that was in front of me. It was uh, something where I had been Hamlet, you know, contemplating life and death. I picked up the chair and I tossed it into the wall. Notice like, that he said into the wall, not <laughs> at the wall. Yeah. He put that chair uh, right into the wall. Into the wall. Because it was, a, these are old walls. These are old studio buildings. They're not drywall. It, they're, they're plaster and lath and lathe. You know? So these sharp, the sharp pointy legs on this Switch. chair, this folding chair, stuck into the wall between two pieces of wood that were underneath the plaster and it stuck there and uh and i ripped off part of my thumbnail when i tossed it so i was bleeding um and didn't know it uh but i was also the anger was roaring in my head uh <laughs> that i was made to do this embarrassing thing <laughs> and um and I finished and I was gesturing saying, do not, do not tempt me, Wolf, do not. You know, I, I was spraying blood on the uh, ceiling, the floor, <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I finished. And they said, uh, somebody way in the back said, thank you. <laughs> and I walked out and uh, apologized later that day profusely to my agent. Uh, for getting angry at an audition and, said, and oh, throwing you, a you, chair at a wall. <laughs> yeah, you got the role. I said, what? He said, yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's how Martok was born. <laughs> I would love to see 
Martok holding a Klingon skull doing Hamlet. <laughs> well, you know, in a card, there is a oh yes, there is a skull Martok with a hole through skull. your bed. Yeah, Martok's skull is on his uh, display display of, of Klingon, you know, victories. I said, when did that happen? First of all. <laughs> <laughs> you know how big Picard is? He's a little tiny guy. Anyway. So w when you look back on your time as Martok, and obviously we, we spoke about it, but in, in the context of the episode with Core in it um, and things like that, what kind of man, well, say Klingon, is Martok to you? You know, I, I tried to simply be as honest in everything that I said and did as I could be as an actor. I didn't have any facade of uh, machinations of any kind. I didn't know. I could have a little sense of humor with, uh, not, uh, with uh, Cisco. And... But mainly, I would be, I would get pissed off at in meetings, you know, or if somebody kept saying something. I said, "I know." <laughs> I actually said it that way. So I know they came back. And every time for a while after that, because Michael Dorn was directing that episode, every time he'd see me, it'd be, "I know." He gave me a reminder <laughs> um, of my petulance, uh, but. Um, I just I, I believed wholeheartedly, you know, even as a as a villain, whenever you play a villain, you cannot, at least in my mind, you cannot possibly play him with villainy or with uh, knowing that I'm going to screw these people. You yeah. play him with the biggest set of honesty and uh, strength as you can. And uh and you'll know him through his actions, you know? Um, so I don't know how to answer that, except that I believed totally in Martok's, uh, what's it called, character? Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, what makes up a man? Um, not personality, but- Charisma? Uh, no, not charisma. The 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 underpinning his ethic. Eth oh, ethics. Yeah, his or as you said earlier, ethos. Um, and try to be loyal to that as much as I possibly could. And what were the rest of the DS9 cast like to work with? Like, how kind of welcoming were they to? Like, who did you get on with best? Obviously, you know, Bob. You, you know Michael because you probably would have spent a lot of time with them. What about the rest of the cast? Yeah, the uh, the person that was most that that welcomed me into the cast with the most with the nicest uh, gestures was Nana. Uh, I came in. I had to prove to the assembled. Uh, regulars in the, in the in the show my first episode which i was turned out to be a fake martok but yeah i had just cut i had to prove that i was really martok by cutting a slice through my palm 
and uh, and watch it bleed. And there was a huge knife, and it had a uh, uh, like a, a a syringe bulb, like a turkey basting bulb, on the on the very end of it. And as you pull the knife across, it was supposed to squeeze that bulb and send the blood out of the tip of the tiny hole of the knife as it went across my palm. And I did it, and it didn't work. Cut. Let's try it again. Reset the knife. Try to do it again. Cut. What's the problem? Let's do it again. I tried to cut. Uh, okay, we're going to do it one more time. Make it work. Make it work. Come on. And being a new actor, I mean, like every all the guys are standing around saying, Jeez, they get this asshole, you know? <laughs> Can't even squeeze a rubber tube. Um, and so... I said, oh, I'm going to squeeze this mother. And the thing shot off the end of the knife and the bulb went across the set. The camera people. And they said, I said, well, did you get it? He said, yeah, we got it. It's good enough. Close. We'll fix it in post. Um, <laughs> that age-old trick, yeah. Yeah, and um, I was convinced the story was going down the road. You you just basically cut your own hand. I was convinced that's where we were going with that. <laughs> I don't think I did, but uh, they, they they'd be smarter. They're smarter than putting a sharp instrument into an actor's hand. Uh, you know, the um, but Nana was the only one who really reached out and said that was good well that was really really effective you're, you're good john you know that you're good and that's all i needed was to somebody to yeah. say you're good <laughs> and nana was great very very she's a theater person and a hoofer you know a dancer singer so i find that the people that have paid their dues on little stages for no money, for nothing, for years, are the most ingenuous and generous people on a, on a movie set or a TV set. They know, they know the struggle that people have gone through to get to that point. Yep. Uh, they know what it's like being the, the kind of the little person, as it were. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Plus, the dan you know, the dancers are, uh, and singers are the hardest people working in show business, I think. Um, but the other thing was Sid, <laughs> and they were together for a long time. But Sid, I, I got such a hoot out of him because when 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 Worf was being married, um, we're all sitting there, we're all standing, uh, looking up at the stage where Worf and uh, Terry are uh, are taking their vows. My beloved Sorella giving them the vow, <laughs> and uh, um, uh, Sid all, the whole time was saying, uh, "Well, they would if there'd be a pause." He'd say, "He'd look at go to my ear and now." And I said, "No, not now." And he, about five seconds later, he said, "Now, no, I'll I'll clue you." 
to keep talking. Now, it was a yes. He leapt up onto the stage and started whacking the hell out of Michael with these cudgels <laughs> because that's what he could not wait to do was beat the shit out of Michael Dorn with these cudgels. And, he, and that's what, the, you know, the Klingon way. Because <laughs> in, uh, in the episode, it just shows Bashir and O'Brien kind of running off and then it kind of fades to black, but you can hear the sound in the background. Oh, all oh, those things hitting the people. Yeah. Them being whacked, yeah. Oh, that's too bad. Because they really did. They, they actually had, really did it. They had cudgels that were, were not hard, <laughs> but they made sounds. They looked hard. They didn't bend, but they made great sounds as they <laughs> as they contacted the body at high speeds. <laughs> You, can't, I, Michael, you know, I have to ask this question because obviously I'm an Irish person. What is what was called a meanie like to be around? <laughs> I didn't have that much to do, Colin. But the one thing I do remember was was he and Rene Aubergenois. God bless him. Yeah, it was an episode that there's everybody, uh, Colin and and Rene and Avery had all been translated into Klingons. Yes. And they were in Klingon gear, and they were in jail for some reason. I can't remember mm -hmm. why. Yep. But I was on the outside, and I was—I had this intense scene through the bars with Avery. Yep. And uh, and I had a long speech about why they things had to be this way, and blah blah blah. Semi-sensitive, even for a Klingon, and. Um, Meanwhile, in the background, I'd say about 30 feet or 20, 20 to 30 feet back in the background were Colm and Renee, who were like five-year-olds. They were like, we're going to be Klingons. <laughs> Look out for us. We have all kinds of, we are so strong and so angry. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they were jumping around. And finally, Avery, Avery turns because they were behind him. And I was had to look past him to them doing this while keeping this scene going. <laughs> and and he turns around finally and he says, Gentlemen, there is a man working up here. <laughs> and it's like they they suddenly they suddenly stopped, frozen, stared at Avery, and they were like <laughs> and all of them especially was like frozen he didn't move for the rest of the scene uh, <laughs> no, it's great renee aubergenois and colomini <laughs> reprimanded <laughs> by the captain <laughs> and do you still stay in touch with bob o'reilly at this point jg oh all the time yeah on a daily basis we have to put some yeah we have to put some shows together for some things we're gonna we want to do together and um uh, a whole month has gone by where I, I was supposedly working on something, but I haven't lifted a finger yet. We have a lot of time, but uh, um, yeah. If we, he if he ever wants talk. to come on the show here with you again uh, at any point, we'd be more than delighted to have you both on at some point together. Oh, absolutely! If, if you know, if he goes on, I, I really have to come on with him because I have to save him from his own. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid and he knows that and if he forgets it I remind him all the time 
<laughs> like a true friend I'll, you are. I'll talk to him, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and JD, as we're coming to the end, I'm just curious one thing. With the book, and you talked about the book being like a memoir and a confessional, what do you think you learned about yourself in the process of writing the book? Well, one of the things I did was learn that I really, uh, I really don't understand why I have never wanted anything so hard. I, I, I never, we had, my, you know, as I said, my family was uh, a, a military family. We didn't have anything, you know, we lived, we always lived in rentals um, and I have two older sisters. We lived in the house that we eventually bought in outside of Washington, D.C. was formerly a poodle uh, grooming house. And it was a garbage. It was a mess. It was a mess. And my dad would spend, he'd work all day on base at Andrews Air Force Base, and then he'd come and work all night at, on the house to get it ready for us to move into. And uh, I believe that that completely, uh, completely warmed down to the point of being uh, uh, what's the word? Um, contract being able to his body was weak so he contracted the uh, he, well he he passed on from a very strange disease called scleroderma and Raynaud's phenomenon a combined thing and it's very painful and uh, it took him away but um, but he spent his last years of being physically strong to get that house ready for us to move into and <clears throat> I never thought about it uh, as much of anything. Uh, I never thought about it as it was always just home because we lived there longer than any place we'd ever been in my lifetime. And uh, I went to a fit my 50th reunion, high school reunion. Uh, and uh, it's that was back in uh, Oxon Hill, Maryland, which is where the national, what's that, Riverfront? What is that What is that thing called? It's a, I can't remember. There's a thing, there's a big entertainment uh, hotel complex that's been built on the shores of the Potomac River, right near us. Yeah. It wasn't, uh, I, it, we didn't consider it near us when we lived there. Um, but I went to the reunion there of 50 years of people that I knew 50 years ago in high school. And um, one one of the women said, um, "Oh, do you still own that that old house in uh, on Temple Hills Road?" It was such a. Uh, I said, "Yeah." She said, "It was such a such a dump, wasn't it?" And I honestly never considered it less than oh. And I didn't get mad at her, but it just, it just, suddenly my perspective on my earlier life yep. moved from here over to here, looking at, at me. And I said, wow. Um, 
and I've said it before, we never had much of anything, but I never, and I'm sure many, you know, many people feel this way. I never wanted for anything. I didn't have to pine away for anything. I never was driven to, to I, I must have that, or I must make it there, or I must become part of this, or I never had that drive. It's because it was sort of Zen. I have all this, you know, um, Anyway, that's um, it was an interesting change of perspective. But so I was never driven to be dissatisfied with what I had. Um, I just had enough. Mike, I'll leave the final question to you. I feel privileged to do this one. It's a really easy question. It won't take any thought whatsoever. Please don't kill me if it's the wrong way around. Anyway, J.G. Herzler, what does Star Trek mean to you? Oh, what, exactly. What, it's, why, it's why confessions of a Klingon linebacker, there are two things mentioned here, Klingon and linebacker. These are the two things that changed my life. Uh, I didn't know. I was a skinny kid playing football. Uh, I didn't have any business playing football until I gained weight. And then I was, you know, I was pretty good, but I was, uh, it changed my life. And if, uh, if I had been playing as a football player, I think in a slightly different time, because that was in 19, my high school graduation was in 68. And it was in those years. And my, so my college was in 72, those years, the Tet Offensive in Vietnam started in 68. Yeah. Nixon um, and the hideous things that began in the Nixon administration uh, were in 72, 71, 72, the Watergate. The world was filled with awful stuff happening. And I said, I looked up into the stands one time when I was playing for Bucknell and I said, uh, the hell am I doing with my life? You know, practicing this, spending nine to 10 hours a day, getting ready, snowing. No, no, getting ready to, um, to fight <laughs> really on a football field. And I said, what am I doing? There must be something more important that I should be doing with my life than this. And uh, that's when I quit football as a senior. Um, and the, my defensive line coach was very, very upset because he said, you know, John, you were going to be little All-American. You were up for lots of things because I, I, was, I wasn't bad. And, uh, um, but it didn't matter to me anymore. Uh, and... And I said, there's something I should be doing. And I'm, I think I'm still looking for it. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, yeah. football and then the fact that I've traveled 
the world in the last 22 to 23, four years, meeting literally millions of people who love Star Trek. And um, it changed my life. And the people that worked on Star Trek for the 50 years and they're still working on it, will tell you the makeup people and the uh, Michael Westmore said to Bob, I think, uh, uh, O'Reilly said, now you know that this will change your life because you're part of this forever. <laughs> and what other show has been going on for 57, 58 years? Uh, the, 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 you know, the, the uh, what's it called? The, um, uh, the family of series that goes on for uh, 57 years. No, no, I don't think anything. And um, so it's an incredible family that's expanded around the world that I'm a part of. And um, so that's what I wrote about. That's awesome. That's why, that's why I call it. That's why. Well, Klingon also people who doesn't like Klingons. I mean, exactly. Besides uh, Robin, Robin, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and even they truly like Klingon. They admitted the truth, but they've never admitted the truth about anything ever. Robin. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah. So <clears throat> that's that's my answer. I'll live Mike, with that. I'll let you do the outro again, Mike, as well, because you're such a practice hand on it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in to this week's episode of The War Room. I have been your co-host, Mike Overton, with our wonderful host, Joseph Hurley, and our incredible guest, General Martok himself, JG Hertzler. Remember, you can tune into our website, clonestarpod.com, for amazing fan art and blogs created by you, our fans. Until next time, kapla. Kapla! And live long and prosper. And live long and prosper. Thank <laughs> you.